1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 is what we're in today. We started this last week. We did some of the background. We talked about how, we talked about how knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, and what that means as we live together in freedom in Christ. Today, we're talking, as I entitled it, the issue behind the issue of freedom in Christ. Now that we've laid the foundation of love versus knowledge, we're going to build on that foundation into what Paul is saying. Before we get there, I need to talk a little bit about gardening. Gardening. I am not much of a gardener. I am not. If someone gives me a plant, there's a 95% chance that that plant will die. You can raise weeds. You know, I can raise weeds too. Thank you, Tim. Yes, there is something I can do in gardening. I can raise weeds. Other than that, they will die, and they will die dead. Most pastors don't talk about gardening in the fall, uh, because most of the time, you know, you talk about gardening in the spring. That's when you have all of those nice illustrations, because everyone's thinking about gardening. Most people don't think about gardening in the fall. Is anyone thinking about gardening right now? couple people? Good. Not harvesting, but actually planting. Anyone thinking about planting? Okay, perfect. Good. Bulbs? Flowers? Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's some flowers that are gardening in the fall. Um, I know a lot of the theories about gardening. My sister can grow anything. She can. As many of you can grow anything. My sister's the type, and many of you are the type too, that if you give her a plant that looks dead... And I would look at that plant and say, that plant's dead. She'll take that plant, and it'll come back to life. Somehow. I don't understand it. But she's able to do that. I know the theories of gardening, but I naturally kill things. My kids are pestering us to have gardens. So, next year, we're going to have a garden. We're going to plant some tomatoes. That's about it. (laughs) And if we get one tomato, it will be success. You looking forward to having tomatoes, David? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, you want snap peas too? I guess we're going to plant snap peas also. Who knows what we'll actually end up with. The things with gardens, everyone has a different theory of gardening. I mean, there's all these different ways to do it. My mind, you take a seed, you put it in the ground, and you let it be. When I was four, my Sunday school teacher gave me a seed with a piece of dirt, a cup of dirt, told me to put that seed in that cup. Water it, leave it, and it'll grow. So I put that seed in that cup. I watered it. Oh, I watered it. <laughs> it was watered. Three days later, it wasn't growing. So I dug around there, found the seed. Nope, not good. Put it back in, watered it again. You know what happened. That's what I do to plants. (laughs) It's not good. I know the theories. I know the theories behind gardening. And everyone has given me their theories about gardening. And everyone tells me something different about what you're supposed to do to make sure these seeds grow. Next year, we're going to try it out. Have you ever been in conversation with someone, you're working on a garden, and they've just had this compulsion 
to tell you their own theories about gardening. Has that ever happened? Yeah. I mean, it's not bad. It's just gardening. And, and they insist that their way is best, even though it goes completely against how you have done it for the past 50, 60, 120 years. But you're gracious. And you listen to them, even though you know your way is going well. I don't have much room to talk, because as you know, I kill things. So in this next year, if you want to give me as much gardening advice as you want, I will listen to it. I will smile and nod. I will probably forget 94% of everything you tell me. But come next year, I will plant the garden, uh, and I will hopefully not go back to my plant-killing ways as I forget everything you've told me. It's amazing how much we as humans, even on small insignificant things, because even as I'm telling you and I'm opening about my, my depravity of just willfully killing innocent plants, and how I, I say, you know, I need information and knowledge, there's a little part of behind me in the back of my head that says, no, but I can do it! I can! Even though the past 35 years has told me I cannot. There's a little proud part that says, no, I can do it! It's amazing how even on little insignificant things like gardening, when our ideas come against someone else's ideas, our pride pops up and says, but... I know what is right. Therefore, let me tell you what is right. And sometimes pretty, people get pretty uptight when we butt ourselves in and try to say what we think we know is right. And if we take each other's views on gardening and all those conversations we may or may not have and amplify it 100% or 200% or 1,000% or whatever percentage, massive percentage that you want to put in there, that's what happens when someone's theology rams into someone else's theology. How we interpret the Bible comes against how someone else interprets the Bible, and sometimes those conversations get rather heated when it happens. Because not only are we talking about what we think about God and how we apply the Bible, but we're talking about the way we live. Because how we, our theology determines our conviction and how we live in this world and some of those gray areas that the Bible doesn't speak of. And sometimes when our theologies ram against each other, our convictions ram against each other, and what normally happens, what sometimes might happen, it might not have happened in your life, but you might have heard about it someone happening, happening in someone else's life, or maybe you've been in a conversation where someone has told you what has happened in their life, and something happened, something like this, an exchange of, are you an idiot? Don't you know what the Bible says? You're such a legalist, or you're such a liberal or whatever name you want to throw out there. Sometimes those conversations happen like that when our viewpoints of the Bible ram against each other, or our convictions on the way of life ram against each other. Sometimes those exchanges don't happen as much in public as they do in private. It's amazing what happens behind closed doors, especially between husbands and wives, or between friends. But it's also amazing, as I said last week, on what happens on social media. Would even though it's in public, people treat it like it's in private. And it's amazing how many conservative Christians who call themselves conservative Christians, what they will say on social media and the names they will throw at people who do not agree with them. 
what do we do when our viewpoints on life and theology come face to face with someone else's viewpoints on life and theology? What do we do? As I said, we introduced this topic last week. We're going to read the passage again that we read last week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother and sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Before we dive in, will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for giving us your word that we could hear it and that we could understand it, that we could know you better and how you, how you do things in this world. Thank you that you gave us instruction not just on the black and white issues of do this and do that, but also you gave us instruction on the gray issues, how we are to live our faith and the gospel in relating to each other. Teach us to know what that means, and Lord, give us your wisdom, because in and of ourselves, we have no idea how to do this. We are sinful people who naturally hurt each other. We are sinful people who are naturally pride and proud and think that our own way is right, even sometimes above what you say. Lord, convict us when we do that, and teach us humility that your character and your gospel might shine through us. We need your help, Lord, so please give it. As I am up here, Lord, I ask that I might decrease and that you might increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So Paul is writing here about a specific issue, one specific issue. They have a disagreement about practical life, which is tied to their theology. It is, as one translation says, food sacrificed to idols. Other translations say meat sacrificed to idols. It's all basically the same thing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Food sacrificed to idols. What in the world is he talking about here? So let's talk about the issue. Let's talk about it biblically, according to Corinth. At this time, most of the cities in the Roman Empire had temples to other so-called gods. In fact, 
if someone was a worshiper of only one God, like the Christians were, we are worshipers of one God, we believe there's only one God, just one. The Romans and other people at that time said, no, there are multiple gods. And they said, if you were truly religious, you would worship multiple gods. Only pagans, those who aren't really religious, limit themselves to one God. So they would throw up all these temples to collect as many gods as they could. In Corinth, they worshipped the goddess Aphrodite, most of them, though there were shrines throughout the city for other gods because this was a multicultural center. People from all the Roman Empire moved here, and they all brought their gods, and they traded them like trading cards, saying, hey, I got this god, you got that god, let's collect them all. Whoever gets the highest set wins. That's what they did. The worship of these so-called gods required a lot of different religious practices that we will not get into because some of them are not appropriate for this sort of setting. But one of the practices that they would do is sacrifice. We all understand sacrifice. The Jews did sacrifice in their religious system. They would kill a lamb. They would kill a bull. They would kill heifers. They would kill all sorts of things to purify themselves from their sin, to purify the temple, to purify the priests. It was all a process of purification. That was the Jewish sacrificial system, purification. The pagan sacrificial system was a way of bringing gifts to the gods. And they would bring animals because the gods needed something to eat. And they'd bring these animals, they would kill the animal at the temple. Part of the animal, the best part, would be left in the temple for use by the priests and the religious practices. The rest of the animal would be brought to the marketplace. And that rest of the animal, it's not the best types of meat, best type was left for the temple, but the, the, the lesser quality of meat would be brought to the marketplace and to be sold fairly cheaply to fund the temple. So, meat sacrificed to idols. Part of the sacrifice was kept in the temple. Part was brought to the marketplace. So, when you did not have enough money to feed your family, you had a choice when you went to the marketplace. You could buy a cut of meat that is within your budget, but knowing that this meat was sacrificed to an idol, the rest of the meat that's in the marketplace is too expensive, but this meat is is good. You, You can afford it, but it's been sacrificed to an idol. Or the choice is you can do without meat for another week for your whole family because you can't afford anything else. So what do you do? When you wanna when you wanna provide wholesome food for your kids? Do you buy the meat that's sacrificed to idols? Or do you forgo meat for another week? That is what is facing the Corinthians at this time. Some in Corinth said, so then about eat, eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom, whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. They confessed that there is only one true God, the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, his Son. That is the God. All other gods are nothing. Therefore, the sacrifice to those gods is nothing. Therefore, there's nothing special about the meat. It's just good, cheap meat. They said if we say there's something special about the meat, therefore we're saying something special about the God, that those false gods are real. Theologically, they say, 
we have to say this meat is okay if we confess to be true followers of Jesus Christ. We have to say this meat is okay. Others in Corinth who are saved out of that adulterous lifestyle say, wait a minute, this meat is a product of satanic worship. I don't want to have anything to do with it because then I would be taking part in satanic worship. Which side's right? Paul says some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. So you have one side that says, hey, if you are truly a Christian, you would have no problem eating this meat. And the other side that says, hey, if you were truly a Christian, you would have a huge problem with eating this meat. What do you do? Paul, what do you do? It's one thing to look at Corinth and consider the issue that they're facing with and sit in our nice, cushy chairs here in the heat and, and say, oh yes, Corinth, we are so wise because we have all the Bible. And we can tell you exactly what to do in that situation in our minds. Academically, we can reason it out. In fact, we have Paul's words. We can say what is true and what is not true. We can do this very easily because we don't have the problem of going to the grocery store and wondering how we're going to feed our family this week, whether we have to take part in something that is worship or not. We don't have that problem. Anyone have, walking through a grocery store and see Meat that's labeled sacrifice to idols. Anyone seen that? No. We don't face that issue today. But we still face all sorts of issues like this every day. Spots where the Bible does not give us an explicit thing of thou shalt not do this or thou shalt definitely do that. There's lots of places where the Bible is gray. And we have to make theological judgments based on different sets of scriptures put together. And sometimes I might arrive at a completely different understanding of that than you might. Even though we're looking at the same scripture. The same set of scriptures. Now, I get to start creating divisions in the body. You ready for this? Let's talk about alcohol. When I was in high school, the church I went to had a covenant, kind of like we do, where when anyone ever anyone joins the church, they look at this covenant and they say, yes, I am going to live in this way to love each other as the body of Christ and to live in a way that shows the community around that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that I will follow. And there was a line in this covenant, the church I went to in high school, that said people who are members of that church would not drink alcohol nor would they attend establishments that sold alcohol. It was in a larger town. They had more of a uh, choices than we have here. Uh, so that line was in the covenant. No one followed it. They didn't. It was just there, but no one followed it. But in that covenant, they actually had scripture showing why a follower of Jesus Christ should do this. Not drink alcohol or attend places that serve it or sell it. When I was in junior in high school, the church went through a constitutional change throughout the whole process, and they changed the covenant, and they took that line out. And there was this huge fight in the church over that. 
And when they took that out, they had a meeting and they showed scripturally why they should take that out. So remember, in the covenant, there were scriptures saying why that should be in. And now they're using scriptures to say why it should be out. <laughs> Huge fight. People got heated. There were people on both sides of the line pointing their fingers at each other saying, if you were a committed Christian, if you were actually biblical, you would do X, Y, and Z. Alcohol is one of those issues like meat sacrificed to idols. We could talk about dress codes. I've been to churches, attended churches, where women were expected to wear dresses at those churches. I have been. Kind of weird. But they did it. I've been in some churches, they went to the extreme and said, hey, women should wear skirts, but women should also worship with their heads covered. Because if you're a biblical, this is what you did. We could argue about that all sorts of ways. There's big debates over there. But if you think about dress codes, there's big debates in the middle ground, too. And there's big debates on the extreme on the other side, too, not of extreme from skirts and head coverings. We could talk about, you know, can a woman wear a two-piece bathing suit? We could talk about, can a, can a man swim without a shirt? We could talk about what is the appropriate attire for formal prom. We could talk about how short should shorts be. We could talk about all these things that the Bible does not say. But we create a standard based upon our understanding of scripture. What is the right answer? We could keep going. We could talk about smoking and chewing out tobacco. We could talk about movies we watch. We could talk about music we listen to. We could talk about playing games that sometimes, but don't necessarily involve gambling. When I was a kid, the pastor's son taught me how to play poker after Sunday school when all the rest of the adults were talking. Uh, and, And after I learned, I found out some people thought poker wasn't good. And I was like, but the pastor's son taught me. I went to college that would not allow any cards on campus because people could use those cards to gamble. Therefore, we're just not going to have the, it, it, was, it was odd. So we could talk about buying lottery tickets. We could talk about going to the casino and enjoying the food and then sneaking into the other section to exercise our arms or our fingers. We could talk about all sorts of different things, all sorts of things that Christians draw lines on and say, this is sin or this isn't sin. And both sides use scripture to prove their point. And both sides are shocked that there are Christians that believe on the other side. Because if you're a Christian, if you actually believe the Bible, you wouldn't be on that side of the issue. There's so many issues today that are applicable to meet sacrifice to idols. Now, I'm not talking in this list. You will notice that nothing in this list says anything about theft or murder or extramarital sex or gluttony or homosexuality or gossip or any of the other sins that Scripture explicitly says this is wrong and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will not do this. Paul, in this list, is speaking of issues that are a threat to Christian freedom, issues that are a threat to Christian freedom, but that are also a potential stumbling block to other Christians and where a Christian brother or sister might actually be led into sin. These are the issues that he's talking about. And any of those issues that I listed on that fit into these three categories. 
issues that are a threat to Christian freedom, that are a potential stumbling block, and where Christian brother and sister might actually be led into sin. But in each of these issues, Scripture does not give a clear black and white discussion on this. Now, don't get me wrong. On the list I gave you, I do believe there is a right answer of who should do what and who should do not do what. But I do believe in our sinfulness. It could be that sometimes our application of Scripture might be wrong. And in our discussion of those issues, we might forget the real issue, just like the Corinthians did. The Corinthians said, we're talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. There's a real issue that we're talking about. Paul does that a lot. The Corinthians say, hey, what about this? And Paul said, yeah, we're not going to talk about this. We're actually going to talk about this. That's more important. He digs deeper and points to a deeper issue going on. So let's look at the real issue of the Corinthians, what it says biblically here. We stated last week, the Corinthians are plowing over other Christians with their so-called knowledge. Right now, we're not going to discuss which side is right and which side is wrong in this Corinthian debate about meat sacrificed to idols. Right now, we're going to discuss what it means to love those within the church. What does it mean not to plow over each other with knowledge? What does it mean to love them? On one side of the church, you had those who said, my theology demands that I can eat this meat sacrificed to idols. Do not stamp on my freedom. So this side, there's more people on this side, so please don't feel like, okay. This side, you're going to be that people. So I want you to yell, freedom. Freedom. Thank you. Anyone feel like they're Mel Gibson right now? That was for you, Brooke. Okay. Okay. On this side, the other side says, my theology demands that I cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't stamp on my convictions. So you're this side. Say conviction. Now say it like you mean it. Thank you. Now, as best you can, look at each other. And when I say, on the, when I say three, you're going to yell your word at the other side. You ready? One, two, three. There you go. Does that work? No, it doesn't. So, for the sake of argument, without showing any of my actual beliefs on the subject, let's say that the freedom side is correct. Okay? How do you feel about that? You like that? That you're, you're right? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. You, some of you are like, yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I feel like, uh, okay. So, okay. How do you feel like they're, that, how do you feel that they're right? You're like, no. No, you don't like it. Paul says, okay, Corinthians, those freedom people, you're correct in your theology. You're correct in theology. But, not in practice. It's interesting, as Christians, it is totally viable to be in a position that in our theology, we are 100% correct, but how we live, we are sinning against God. We don't like to think that way. We like to think, well, if I'm right, therefore I'm completely 100% right, but Paul says no. You can be right and still be wrong. He brings up the idea of the weaker brother or sister. There are many twisted understandings of this weaker brother. Some people, when they're reading this passage, they think that the weaker brother is that a person who is offended by a particular practice. 
Uh, and this came about because of some translations translating this weaker brother as the brother that is offended, which isn't a correct translation of this word. Um, this, this is, some people say th- that these are the people who are offended at alcohol being served. They're offended by a lady wearing a two-piece bathing suit. They are offended. They just, it, it causes them emotional angst. Paul's not talking about people who feel emotional angst by an issue. So, not offended. Paul's also not talking about those who get offended by actions. Neither is he talking about someone who has been described as a professional, weaker brother. This is the Christian legalist who has their rules of what is right and what is wrong. And they create that list, and they keep adding to that list. And on that list are things that they would never actually do themselves. They're so strong in their conviction, they would never go to that movie, they would never listen to their music, and they would definitely not wear those clothes. But they go around and tell people, you shouldn't do that either, because this is my list, and you need to bow to my list. Paul's not talking about the professional, legal, legal, the professional weaker brother because this person would never actually take part in these practices that they're condemning. Paul is talking about a Christian who's likely would imitate a stronger believer in some morally neutral practice, but would feel guilty doing it, or still worse, would be led into something that is inherently sinful or destructive. This is someone that says, Yes, I have a conviction against watching that movie, but since you're going to do it, I, 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 guess, I guess I'll do it too. But as they're sitting there, they're feeling so horrible because they're going against their conviction that they, they hold very strongly. A few of the Corinthian Christians would feel especially guilty about eating this food sacrificed to idols because of their convictions, because it would remind them of their past and they don't want to go back there. Some of those Corinthian Christians wouldn't feel guilty about it, but they start and they eat that food sacrificed to idols, and they remember the sacrificial practices, and they remember the religious practices, and their mind it takes the leap of, wait a minute, if it's okay to eat this food sacrificed to idols, maybe some of these religious practices are okay too, and that eating food sacrificed to idols is a gateway to these other practices that are sinful. And those on the freedom side say, but that's their choice. They should keep a stronger grasp on what they think they should do or, or what they cannot do. It's their decision. It's up to them. Why should we have to stop doing our freedom? Because it's them, not us. Really? Maybe. But what does it mean to love them? Shouldn't we care for their souls? Shouldn't we care for those who look up to us and seek to imitate us? Shouldn't we care to not lead a brother or sister in Christ in a way that will end up in their sin? Yes, it's ultimately their responsibility, but what does it mean to love them? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, verse 14, he said, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. What does that look like for us today? What does that look like for us today? I was at a bachelor party several years ago. And it was a perfectly fine bachelor party. We went bowling. Kind of like this. That's my preferred method of bowling. (laughs) 
a friend of my friend was there. I just met this guy. Uh, and he was from California. <laughs> that should have just given me warning right there. Uh, but he was talking about Christian freedom. Christian freedom. And how we have the freedom to do whatever we want to. God has given us things in life to be enjoyed. And we need to stay away from legalism. We need to have Christian freedom. And I was following along, yeah, yeah. And then he started talking about all these sorts of things that he and his wife do because of Christian freedom. You know, his wife brought him to Hooters one day for his birthday because God has given us things to be enjoyed. And then after he was talking about that, he whips out this pack of cigarillos. Cigarillos are a cross between a cigar and a cigarette. He says they're the best thing in the world. He said, God has given us things to be enjoyed, and we should be able to enjoy things as long as we don't get addicted to them. And I look over at another friend of mine who was there. And I happen to know that this guy has struggled with addiction in his life. And as this other guy is touting Christian freedom and raving about these cigarillas, I saw the look pass in my friend's eye. And he listened, he reached out, he took, and he smoked. And this guy, yes, I agreed with so much of what he said. Some of it I didn't. But so much I did agree with. But he was not listening to his audience. He was not seeing if there was a weaker brother in there that needed him to care for him. There was someone else I knew who was an alcoholic who got clean, wanted to change his life for the sake of his family. He got a job, good-paying job, but on breaks, his coworkers would drink beer. And they'd say, oh, it's fine, it's fine, come on, it's okay. That's in your past. Just take one beer. One beer will be okay. Just do it. It'll be fine. And so finally he said, okay, one beer is okay. God's given us things to enjoy. It's fine. I can do one beer. I totally fine can do one beer. He took one beer, went back to alcoholism, ended up in prison for domestic abuse tied to his beer drinking. What does it mean to love those around us. What does it mean to love those around us? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 10 to 12, for someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. It's pretty strong language. Does anyone here want to be known as the person who sinned against Christ? No. As I prepared this sermon, I, I struggled a lot with examples. Because I don't want to be the person standing up here when I talk about gray areas and have someone here who might be a weaker brother and say, oh, you know, pastor didn't tell me what was right or wrong in these gray areas, therefore, I'll go and do it. And if you're listening, if you're here, and I mention a gray area that you've struggled with in the past, do not go and do it. Don't do it. Don't let one decision make you do something that you will regret for the rest of your life. The point is this. Those who cry freedom in Christ need to remember those who cry conviction. Whatever the issue is, whether it's meat sacrificed to idols, 
or alcohol or modesty or tobacco or movies or music or games or gambling or any other issue we want to talk about in this gray areas. Out of love, we need to seek to look around to those around us and seek to lift them up to Christ instead of forcing them to follow our thinking. I would rather have someone have conviction and follow Christ than have freedom and follow me. Because I am a sinful human being and will naturally lead people wrong. The Corinthians' main issue was they were not willing to truly love those in their church. They were more concerned about their knowledge and their thinking than actually loving those around them. So what's the answer? We've looked at the issue. We've looked at the real issue behind the issue. Now what is the answer? Who is right? Is the freedom people right? Is the conviction people right? Paul says both are right. As to meat sacrifice to idols, Paul says simply, but food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Food has no bearing on our sanctification, Paul says. I think about Peter, who was raised up as a good Jewish boy, and from early on, he was taught that, that there are certain foods that were against God to eat. If you ate them, you were literally against God. One day he's standing on his roof when he's an adult because for some reason at that time they stood on roofs. He stood on roofs and he had a vision about a sheet coming down from heaven. And a voice said to him, in that sheet there was filled with all sorts of food that he was not supposed to eat. Food that we, if he ate it, he would be against God. And the voice said, get up Peter, kill and eat. And Peter replied, surely not Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. God was teaching people, Peter a lot of things during the vision. And one of these is that food protocol is not a requirement for our salvation. That's one of the main things. He also talked about other things that Acts tells us about. But simply, Paul is saying, when it thinks about food or any of these gray areas. Christians must ask something. Christians must ask, is this practice inherently pagan or anti-Christian? Is this practice that I'm thinking about doing, is it inherently pagan or anti-Christian? Are there elements in it that are inherently pagan or anti-Christian? Or is this practice necessarily destructive or hurtful to individuals involved? Is it anti-Christian? Is it destructive? Cases in point, certain Eastern meditation techniques are inherently Christian and pagan and therefore should be avoided. Another example, drugs are necessarily hurtful to individuals and should be avoided. You see how that works? Okay. If the practice passes these two tests, it's not anti-Christian, there's no destructive into it, we can ask a more positive question. We can say, okay, is our participation, would our participation provide a way of outreach to non-Christian world by building friendships through activities non-Christians enjoy? Is there a way of outreach? Okay, say for the sake of argument that golf, there's some division in the Christian church about golf. And some people say golf is sinful. Okay, I don't know any Christian that says that, but some Christians probably should. Golf is sinful. We say, well, no, there's nothing inherently anti-Christian or pagan in it, and it's not destructive unless you actually hit the ball into someone else, but that's just random. And I can use it as a way in outreach because I can go and build friends with people and share the gospel on the golf course. So I'm going to do golf. You can have your convictions over there, 
but I will do golf. There was always gray areas, though, in these things, and two great danger zones uh, as we follow this. Uh, danger zones is we do not want to accept syncretism. That's a mixture of religious, religions. Uh, some practices in the Roman Catholic Church and other major denominations are syncretistic. They actually took other religions and brought them into, into their worship so that converts would feel more comfortable in their worship. And if you want to know what some of those syncretistic practices are today, I will let you know. Another danger in the, is in the other direction. We want, don't want to accept separatism. If we remove ourselves from all activities that might smell of evil, we will not be able to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world as Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to skip over this passage. You can look at it yourself because I am running out of time. So what do I think about any of these issues? I can say is that you can make an appointment and we'll talk about them. Because the answer isn't so cut and dried that I can fit it into this sermon. Because when we talk about these issues, we have to talk about the real issue. What do we do about loving the weaker brother or sister? One could be easily influenced to go against their conscience and sin. Paul says strongly, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul would rather be a vegetarian than influence a weaker brother or sister to go against their conscience. He would rather do that. And Paul doesn't seem to be the vegetarian type. And I would have a really hard doing, time doing this because I am, I love meat. But we can look at each of the issues that I brought up and multitude of other issues and apply the same thing. I have several friends, several family members who are alcoholics and therefore I do not drink alcohol to show them that someone can live without alcohol. And it's a choice I make. Other Christians drink alcohol, I say, fine, go do it. Bible is silent. My conviction, for the sake of them, I do not drink alcohol. I willingly abstain because in the words of Paul, I'm no worse if I drink alcohol. I'm no better if I do. So for their sake, I'm fine. I could apply that phrase to each of the issues here. The point is we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes that means dying to what we think is right so that they don't have to dive into what they think is wrong. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 14, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean we should allow everyone to dictate our theology and just mold our thinking of the Bible based on them? No. In fact, we can cautiously, lovingly, gently, humbly disciple them to a place of strength freedom, if possible. But again, making sure not to lead them into guilt or sin, taking the time to disciple. I used all these words very carefully. I chose them very carefully. We must do it cautiously, lovingly, gently, and humbly. We must realize that our goal is to push them to Christ and give freedom in him. Our goal is not to influence someone to follow us and our mind. Because knowledge puffs up and love builds up. What do we do when our viewpoints on life and theology come face to face with someone else's viewpoints on life and theology? Paul says that we realize the real issue behind the issue in our face and we love the person in front of us and encourage them to follow Christ. Not us. That's it. We love them and encourage them to follow Christ. And maybe they'll come back around and say, we were right. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to know what it means to love those around us.
Father, help us to get out of our mind and our pride and to humbly look at those around us and humbly urge them to follow you. 